You are an excellent Bible reader. Oh my goodness. That was terrific. G'day everyone. I'm Dave if we haven't... Oh, why not? Yes, absolutely. Well done. You should do audiobooks or something. That was amazing. Um, I'm Dave if we haven't met before. Just before we get started looking at that passage, a word about carols. I want to chuck up the save the date uh, for carols. The last couple of years, as we've just heard, you know, there's been a few things that have made uh, uh, carols quite difficult uh, to put on. Last year was on the lawn, before that wasn't happening. This year, really excited, it is happening on the 7th and the 17th. Um, it's going to be a bit of a different vibe uh, than it has been in previous years. So it will be inside, uh, but it won't potentially be the, the extravaganza it has been in the past. Instead, um, it's going to be a family celebration as we sing these wonderful songs uh, and also sort of setting the vision for inviting people to Christmas services, to Summerfest uh, to come. So make sure you come along December the 17th, 4 and 7 p.m. Uh, it will be a fantastic, wonderful time uh, as we get to sing those wonderful songs together. I'm going to pray as we look at this part of the Bible uh, and then we'll, we'll have a look. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift uh, that you give to us, and we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We pray um, that you would take away the distractions of our heart, our mind, our soul, uh, and allow us to focus in uh, deeply and profoundly on what it is that you're uh, saying to us through your word. Uh, you would reveal the truth through your spirit into our hearts. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, well, I want to uh, speak to you today about the topic of success, and I want you to start thinking about the question, what is it to be a success in life? What does it look like for your life to be considered successful? Imagine uh, that you get a time machine, and you go back to your childhood, let's say 11 or 12, old enough to know a little bit, not old enough to have completely destroyed your own life yet, that kind of age, uh, and you get there, and, and you've only got time for one remark, just one sentence that you can say to your younger self. You find yourself, you grab yourself by the shoulders, and, and you go, no matter what, above all else, make sure you... Now, how would you finish that sentence? If you were to compile all of your wisdom, insight, experience into one remark... One piece of advice to your younger self, which you would want your younger self to apply in life in order to have a successful life, what would it be? What is success in life? You know, there's no shortage of people who are willing to answer that question for us. You just have to put on the television at any, uh, any time of day and you'll find people willing to talk to us about success in life, how we should live, what we should do, what matters most. But I want to suggest to you that it stands to reason that there's only one voice we need to listen to, and it's not on TV, and it's not on the radio or a podcast. It's actually God. Um, God is the one who created every single one of us. Uh, he didn't just create our lives, he also created our purpose, our, our meaning, our reason. And so what that means is that when he speaks about our lives, he's not making it up. It's not just another expert opinion. It's truth. And I want to suggest to you that um, applying the truth that God gives us about life in your life uh, produces remarkable, profound changes in how you understand things. Today we're going to be looking uh, at Hebrews chapter 11, which is a chapter uh, which has profound implications on the topic of success. It's not about success, but it has profound implications on the topic of success. But I must warn you before we do so, what we discover about God's perspective of, on success is shocking. It's staggering. It's offensive. If you're not a Christian here today, get ready. It's going to be offensive. That's great. Um, if you are a Christian, get ready. It's going to be offensive. No, listen. 
it's a shocking thing for us to read because it's so against our intuition and our instinct. And yet at the same point, it is the most beautiful and wonderful truth uh, you could ever, ever see. Uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Let me give you a little bit of context for this part of the Bible. Hebrews, uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know, is written to a group of Christians 2,000 years ago. Specifically, it was written to this group of Christians who were facing the onslaught of persecution uh, for being Christians. And they were facing temptation and trial from within as well. All of this to, to, to move away from Christ, the temptation to move back and shrink back from being Christians. So the author of the book of Hebrews has one clear aim in mind. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't shrink back. Keep at it. Stick with Christ. If you have your Bible open, and that's the best thing to do, bring your Bible to church, have it open as we look. Um, the last part of chapter 10, which we looked at last week, uh, we see the author of Hebrews take a very specific technique and tactic of encouragement. It's called fear. He, he warns the Christian church that, that this book is written to, and us, about the reality of facing eternity without being covered by the blood of Jesus. Do you remember that verse, chapter um, 10, verse 31? Um, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. But this week, with the same outcome of encouragement in mind, the author of Hebrews has a different technique and, and tactic um, to encourage the people, to encourage us. He, he, he speaks about a resource available to every Christian that will enable us to persevere, to persevere through temptation and trial, to persevere through, um, through all the desires within us to shrink back from Christ. And we see the theme of it introduced. Let me read it for you in the very last two verses of chapter 10. My righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved." the resource available for every Christian person to face the fight against shrinking back is faith. Hebrews chapter 11 has been called by others the great chapter of faith. You would have noticed in your Bible reading, uh, it's mentioned again and again and again, 28 times actually throughout the chapter, the word faith is actually mentioned. And in a few moments' time, we are going to really dig into what Hebrews 11 is telling us about faith. But... Before we do so, let me just address the elephant in the room. Uh, and by that I mean to say there is an issue for all of us with the very word faith. What is it? The issue with the word faith is that there's actually two dominant definitions of it that are very popularly used within our culture. And both these definitions actually clash with one another. They, they both can't coexist at the same time. And yet it's very possible that when you say the word faith, you're thinking of one of them. When someone else says the word the faith, they're thinking of the other one. And you'll never have any clue that you're actually speaking about completely different things. Let me read to you some of the definitions. I looked it up in the, in the dictionary. This one comes from Collins, the Collins Dictionary. Faith is unquestioning belief that does not require proof or evidence. Now, that's, best, that's the top definition of the word faith. That's best defined as blind faith. Can I give you an example? The Parramatta eels. Now, <laughs> there are some people who believe Parramatta will win the premiership next year. There is no 
evidence whatsoever that Parramatta will win in the next 40 years, let alone the next one year. They haven't won in the last 40. Why would they win in the next 40? And yet there are delusional people. They sit amongst us. <laughs> who with no evidence whatsoever believe Parramatta have a chance. Blind faith. Now, it's worth noting that this is what most Aussies think of when they think of Christian faith. Have you got that? When most people, and it's not insulting, this is just how people define the word. When most people think about what Christians believe, most non-Christians, they would define faith as, well, um, belief without evidence. And it's often pitted against uh, the opposite, which is evidence. So, you know, science versus faith. So reason and rationale versus um, irrational unreasonable. You're, you've got faith, that's beautiful. A spiritual crossing of your fingers hoping for the best. Now that's definition number one. Definition number two is actually the definition that is in far more common um, usage, even though it's not defined very clearly for many of us. This is definition number two. This is from the Cambridge Dictionary. Great trust or confidence in something or someone. You get that? You see the difference? Great trust or confidence in something or someone. Now, this is the type of faith that you and I exercise far more often. You've done it a hundred times already today. You get in your car, you trust your car is not going to explode, even though you didn't check under the bonnet to make sure there's no bomb. You are sitting in your chair, it doesn't fall down. You believe, you trust your chair, the roof isn't going to fall in. All the Sydney roosters will win. Trust, confidence, all these things, you, <laughs> all these things you believe, you act upon, because of faith, trust, confidence in something or someone. Do you see how those clash? You see how when you use the word faith, particularly spiritual faith, they can't exist together. Now, which one does the Bible mean when it talks about faith? Definition number two. So when the Bible speaks of faith, it talks about trust or confidence in something or someone. So why does everyone else think we mean something else? Well, I think part of the reason for that is that Christians are confused about what the word means. We are often not quite sure, and, and even sometimes we nod along and agree when someone says, oh, you've got faith, I've got reason. Sure, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. But we need to be critically aware of what the word faith means. But I do think um, part of the reason why Christians may have the wrong idea about faith is actually found in our reading of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the great topic of this chapter, but let me read for you verse 1 and, and take a listen and see, see what you think of how chapter 11 begins. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Wait, What? Just quietly, doesn't that sound a lot like definition number one? And I agree, it does sound a lot like definition number one. It certainly would if that was a definition of faith. You see, my friends, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 is not a definition of what faith is. What is it? It's a description of what faith does key difference. It's not as if the author of the Hebrews has decided to start a dictionary in the middle of the book of Hebrews. Oh, by the way, this is what faith means. No, no, no. 
But also, more than that, we know that this is not a definition but a description because of the way chapter 10 has actually ended. He's actually ended by saying, um, uh, uh, the righteous live by faith, those who are saved have faith. And then he introduces his great theme, he continues it on by saying, and this is what faith does in the life of the righteous. Do you see that? This is what faith is producing in the life of the saved. This is not what faith is, this is what faith does. To Christian people. Now, keeping that in mind, look again at the verse. Let's have a look together. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. What does faith do? Faith gives substance today to what is promised for tomorrow, it builds certainty in what will happen. So that the most important part of my life is not the here and now, but is what is to come. One of my favourite movies growing up was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Any Kevin Costner fans? He's the best. I'd expect more from you, but that's okay. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, old movie. But there's a scene in it where Robin, played by Kevin, he picks up a telescope. He's never seen a telescope before. Okay, he's never picked one up before. Uh, Morgan Freeman's character passes in the telescope and he looks and there's some enemy off you know, 500 metres away. But they're big in the telescope and he falls off and he starts hitting it with his sword. It's like, oh, he doesn't understand what's happening. <laughs> he thinks they're closer than they are. Faith is a telescope to the future that so enlarges what will happen that it dominates and provides substance for today. Now, to illustrate that, we then have example after example of some of the great figures of the Old Testament um, to to explain exactly what it is that faith produces and and to prove the power of faith in their lives uh, and what it actually achieves. So let me just show a a few of these for you. uh, And um, these are names that you may remember. I'm just going to point out three of them for you. The first one I want to show you is is Noah. Let me read verse 7. Come to verse 7. This is what's written. By faith, Noah... When warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Noah lived in an area without much rain. There was no indication whatsoever. There was no clouds on the horizon. There wasn't a storm brewing. And yet he built an ark. Why? Because God told him there would be a flood which would kill everyone. And he was terrified for his family. He was terrified for himself. He so trusted what God would say. And so he built an ark. Have you ever considered what that cost Noah, I don't mean financially, I mean socially. I feel self-conscious mowing the lawn on a Saturday morning. He built an ark on his front lawn. And yet, what did he do? He built. No matter what they said, no matter what they thought, he trusted in God's promise for the future and acted on it, even though there was no indication it was happening at the time. The next one is Abraham. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. We've got two promises dictated to us about about Abraham. The first one is... um, that Abraham uh, is is given a promise to go somewhere else, to leave his land, to go elsewhere. We had it read out to us uh, previously. He is to leave and to go um, to a land that he does not know. And so Abraham picks up his entire family and goes to where? Nowhere, somewhere, anywhere. There's no realestate.com. There's no one he can call to check on the property prices or what things at schools, how are things going to be. And yet he picks up his entire family and goes. He has no idea what's waiting for him. It could be amazing, but it could be terrible. It could be like England. 
or New Zealand. It could be like Melbourne. And yet he goes. <laughs> Melbourne's the worst. Now listen, that's not the only promise we see from Abraham, do we? Verse 18 and 19, check it out. Verse 17 and 18, I should say. Um, the other promise that we've um, got exampled for us here in Abraham's life is the one involving his son Isaac. By faith, Abraham, verse 17, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would embrace the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Isaac, Abraham's much desired for child. Finally born, finally raised, and then God tells him to sacrifice his only son. Now we know the ending, and if you don't, let me tell you, God prevents that from happening. He's not into child sacrifice. But Abraham doesn't know the ending. And yet, what does he do? He is willing to obey the word of God above and beyond that of even the life of his own son. Now, the last one I want to point out to you, and this is, um, this is an incredibly important example given to us here, is the one about Moses. Come forward here to verse 23. We see here about Moses, there's a couple of details given to us from his life. Moses was born uh, and adopted into a royal family. Now royalty, he was raised in the, in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. Royalty in the ancient world, ancient Egypt, was beyond what we can possibly comprehend, all-consuming power, authority in every particular way. That was Moses's. And yet what do we read? Moses shrugged it off. Verse 24, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. From, from importance to insignificance, from the palace to poverty, from everything to nothing. Now just press pause for a moment. What could make people act like this? Well, we see the answer 28 times by faith. But how does that work? What is it that faith does? Well, look again at Moses, because we're given the clue here, the key actually, more than the clue, the very clear key of understanding the power of faith and, and what it actually produces. Look at um, verse 26 and verse 27. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now just stop there. What did Moses have faith in, according to verse 26? It's not the existence of God. Rather, he had faith in God's promises. Now, this gets us right to the precipice of, of another really common misdefinition of the word faith. It's very common for, for many people to think, well, Christian faith in particular is only the belief in the existence of God. Have you heard that before? Maybe you think that. I believe in God, therefore I'm a Christian. I believe he's there. I'm a Christian. Or even further, you can say, I believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. I believe those things happened. Therefore, I'm a Christian. My dear friends, that is an inadequate and incomplete definition of faith. That is not a saving faith. The devil believes in all those things. He knows they happened. That is not what will save you. What is it that Moses has faith in? God's promises. Faith is not only believing in God, it's 
believing God. Do you see that difference? It's taking God at his word, that he will do what he says he will do, that his promise is as good as kept from the moment that he makes it, from the bottom of your heart, that our God speaks nothing but truth. His speaking is his doing. That is faith. Trusting God's promises for the future. But it's not only that. Look again, verse 26 and verse 27. There's curious expressions in the middle of here you might have picked up. What is it that Moses focuses his attention on? Verse 26, he was looking ahead to his reward. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Faith is the powerful tool that God gives Christian people that gives us the ability to Get perspective. This chapter is all about the power of perspective. And perspective is a word which means how you view things, how you see reality, how you see things. Faith in the promises of God, held to and clung to as absolute certainty, so transforms your picture of what will happen that you understand that what is happening is not of chief importance. Faith gives so much substance to the future that you're able to then navigate your life wisely because you know what is to come. Let me illustrate this. Um, Before I was in ministry, I was in the army. I was an infantry officer. Don't worry about that. But I was an officer in the army. And um, when I joined the army as a young man, there was many challenges facing me. I was a city boy. I'd never been camping, for goodness sakes. So, you know, all these things uh, that was going to be a huge challenge. However, it became very clear that there was one thing above all else that was the biggest challenge, and that was navigation. My ability to go the wrong direction is stunning. Okay? You ever seen an American cop show, and they're like, oh, he's going north on 33rd Street. Like, do they have a compass? How do they know which way north? What are they doing? If inability to navigate well was a spiritual gift, I'm the most gifted person you've ever met in your life. I'm a terrible navigator. I couldn't work out anything at all. Now, to navigate an army, you get maps and compasses and, and uh, uh, protractors, and I can't even remember what you do. You know, these whole things, and I was just like, <gasps> now that was bad enough in training, but after becoming a, a lieutenant, I go out, I then have real live breathing soldiers who depend on my ability to navigate. Okay, and this isn't your wife with a Gregory's giving you the wrong direction. This is going out, potentially hostile enemy, depending on your correct ability to know where you're going. And I, if I would always do the opposite of what I wanted to do, then I was in a better case, a better situation than when I was doing I was just horrible. And so the first couple of months as an army officer, I'm walking around with this compass. I'm pretending, you know, might as well have been a watch. Like, I'm just pretending. And 30 men just looking at me, just going just being led by this idiot around the place. However, something happened six months in that changed everything. I was at a barbecue. I I remember it. All my stories are true, but this one is very true. Now, I was at a barbecue in Townsville. Oh, yeah. And and someone had a hunting and fishing magazine on the table, par for the course in Townsville. And I open it up, and there's this advertisement. this, This advertisement for this... Thing by a brand called Garmin. Have you heard of Garmin before? It's called the Global Positioning System, the GP, 
GPS. And I looked at Here's this thing. It's military, this is before they're on cars and stuff. There's this military-grade thing that I can turn on that tells me exactly where I am. And not only that, I can put in the grid reference for where I want to go, and it will tell me how to get there. It'll tell me which way not to go. And it's got this little thing called um, breadcrumbs where you can say where you've been. So suddenly, in, in, in the midst of utter darkness and blindness, sight. I know where I am. I know where I'm going. I know where I've been. I cannot tell you how that transformed everything. Now, if only they could develop a machine that could make you shoot straight, I would have been the best army officer you've ever seen. But that was the next challenge, and if you want to work on that later, we can develop that. But my friends, at the very core of being a Christian person is the ability to see clearly. And it's critical that you see that clearly. At the very core of what it means to be, to be a Christian is someone who has a proper perspective on life, who has proper perspective that comes from faith in what God has promised about the future. Faith makes the promises of the future so real that it means you can navigate life wisely, correctly, properly. You can see things for what they really are. That is what faith does. And these lists of names through Hebrews 11 is almost as if the author of Hebrews with a big neon sign is saying, this is a life of faith in action. Now, of course, what do you make of that? Let me just ask you, what do you make of that? That thought. Who wouldn't want that? The ability to know the future. What does that do to a person? Stress, worry, anxiety, concern. All the, all the things that bother us and, and keep us awake at night about tomorrow and the next day. And the day gone, faith, boom. The ability to know what tomorrow brings changes everything. But now let me ask you a question. How is that going for you? If that's what faith is, and to be a Christian is by absolute definition someone who has faith, has the ability to know what tomorrow brings, transform your present day reality, is that an accurate description of your life? If so, praise God. If not, why not? How come even though we know what tomorrow brings as Christians, we still struggle with temptation and anxiety, we still struggle with fear. We still, we still struggle when we're, when we're attacked and persecuted and insulted for being Christians and, and worry. We still veer away from, from following Jesus. Why do we drift not towards obedience but disobedience, not towards faithfulness but towards sinfulness? Why is that? Well, what I want to do um, uh, is just spend some time there um, diagnosing what I think the problem may be. Um, spend some time thinking about what is actually going on inside of us and uh, broader a field in church and across our community. Before then, um, looking at two, um, two things that the passage gives us, two resources, two understandings, um, which I'm utterly convinced um, can see um, prolonged fruit and growth within this area. But first of all, the problem. Um, the diagnosis. I want to suggest one of the key reasons we find grasping and keeping hold of the promises of God in our lives is all about the perspective we bring to success. Just think about our country. Can you do that? Consider Australia. Simple question. To the average Aussie, what does a successful life look like? 
I don't know if you notice this, but if you look at Noah and Abraham and Moses again, and the things that they rejected thousands and thousands of years ago, what you'll find is that the very things that they rejected are actually very, very close to the ideal of the middle-class Australian dream that consumes so many of the people around us. Power, money, reputation, and the big two, property and family. The very same things that were the treasures of humanity thousands of years ago are still the very same things that are our treasures today. Now, why is that? Why have those things lasted as the most important things for anyone to grasp hold of? Very simple, because of the perspective that our society has about life. What perspective does the wider society have about life? Very simple. This life is all there is. This is it. Make hay while the sun shines. This is it. And so, Pouring your effort and energy into the things of this world is the only logical, rational thing to do in that case because this life is all there is. There's nothing else to come. Family, work, hobbies, relationships, the key to meaning and satisfaction must be found in this life because this life is all there is. And when it comes to the future, well, what's the future? The future is unknown. And in fact, when we're completely honest, the future is a terrifying thought. To most people, we spend most of our lives trying to avoid thinking about it at all costs. But what about you? Is your picture of success in life different to your non-Christian neighbours, friends, family? What's the greatest challenge facing us as Christians in Australia 2022? I'm, I'm just utterly convinced it's not persecution. Some of you do face persecution, insult, mockery and worse, family, friends, work. And this, this passage gives great hope to us in the face of that, which we will look at. But I do want to say, even those of you who face that, I think all of us unanimously are consumed with the same danger. What's the greatest danger facing Christians in our world? The far more dangerous trap than persecution is the, the desire for us to play around with the dreams of middle-class Australia and make them our own. And so we sacrifice our time, our dreams, our money, our efforts, at the altar of the dream life, the, the, the same life as everyone else with a tinge of spirituality on the top. We don't bring them to God and his kingdom and his people, we bring them to ourselves. Why do we do that? Because we are immersed in the deepest ocean of a culture that is consumed with this life is all there is. And because that is the cultural air that we have been brought up in, that we are consumed by, that is all around us, it makes it very, very difficult to see things differently. And I also want to say, because Australian Christianity has for so long messed around with this danger... Australian Christianity, and by that I include myself, all of us, we've messed around with, with this enormous trap, thinking we can have part of it, but not all of it. Oh, I'll just do a bit of this and a bit of that, and I'll just live the same life as everyone, but with a little bit different, that we're ensnared in it. And it makes it very hard to see that we're actually even doing it. So what do we do? Well, I think the very first thing we need to do is to see it and own it for what it is. 
delusion does no one any favours. Believing that somehow we're not affected and influenced by the outside world around us, um, for most of us, I need to say, is absolute delusion. We need to see it and own it and understand the danger of it. But then, what I'm convinced from this passage that we need to do is re-evaluate and redefine success. Not by what the world says, not by the perspective the world offers, but have our idea of success defined by Jesus. And come to chapter 12 here. Because this entire passage, the stanza of this passage, actually ends by doing just that, by offering to us the perspective of life that the Lord Jesus has. Um, And I want to say that there's two things in here uh, which I'm convinced have a profound uh, and deep impact on those of us who who are willing to actually own our weakness and our flaws here, but want to change. Um, Chapter 12 has three remarkable verses. It's a remarkable piece of scripture. I just want to show you uh, two of them. Let me start midway through verse 1. After going through all these examples of Old Testament heroes of the faith, this is how the author finishes. Let us run with perseverance. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, there's just six words in there I want you to take notice of, um, and they're right in the middle. Why did Jesus go through the horrific physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual pain of crucifixion, of death on the cross? Look what it says. For the joy set before him. What does that mean? Jesus was consumed by a future reality of joy that enabled him to go through the horrific, unspeakable pain of the cross, the very wrath of his father. Because in comparison to that joy, the present pain was worth it. You get that? So what was that joy? Well, verse 2 tells us, look how it ends, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, that's an expression um, that, if you've never heard it before, is almost like a a shorthand code phrase um, that has a lot of background and meaning to it. This is what it means. Jesus, as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, actually talked about it all the time, uh, Jesus, when he died and rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and then we're told he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, He then rules and reigns over the universe. So you and I are under the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is the king of this world. That wasn't the case before he was crucified and resurrected. Yes, completely God. But here, after resurrection, ascension, now at the right hand of God the Father, rules and reigns as king of the universe. So what does it mean for Jesus to look towards the right hand of God? It means eternity. It's the eternal reality of Jesus ruling and reigning over the new creation forever and ever and ever and ever. That's the first meaning I want you to hold on to, eternity. But there is another meaning, a meaning here that changes everything, a twist that changes everything about what we're seeing. Come back to chapter 10. Just just have a look here. 
You might have been aware that um, throughout uh, Hebrews, Jesus is portrayed as the great high priest. Have you heard that language? The great high priest, the one whose atoning work of the cross um, uh, atones for the sins of his people. But there's something that happens after we're told of Jesus' atoning work as priest throughout the book of Hebrews, um, three separate times, um, and and I want you to pay attention to it. Uh, uh, Look at verse 12 of chapter 10. This is talking about Jesus. But when... But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Just stop there. Jesus' seating at the right hand of his Father, of God, is associated throughout Hebrews with his atoning work on the cross. What joy was awaiting Jesus on the other side of the cross. My friends, if you are a Christian here today, if you are truly a born-again, spirit-filled follower of the Lord Jesus, if you've repented and put your trust in Jesus, whether you did it this week, whether you did it 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, it matters not. If you are a Christian here today, understand this. What was the joy waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? It was the joy of seeing you forgiven. That's what filled Jesus with joy to endure the cross. Your salvation. There's a story of a doctor who travels deep into a jungle um, to provide medical care to a primitive tribe uh, who are all afflicted with a contagious disease. Um, he's a wealthy man. He, he brings all of his own equipment in. Um, he comes in. He's a good doctor. He diagnoses the problem. He's got the antibiotics prepared. Um, the, 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 the cure is correct, all of it. He's independently wealthy. He's got no need for any financial compensation or assistance or anything like that. He sets up his table, his tent, uh, right next to where the tribe live, and he waits But as he seeks to to provide care, the people with the disease, the afflicted tribes people, they refuse. They don't trust him. They want to take care of themselves. They want to be healed on their own terms. But finally, a few of the young ones step forward to receive the care that's being offered. What does the doctor feel? Joy. Joy. Why? The whole reason he came was to cure the sick. The whole reason he came was to heal. Now consider this. How much more joy would fill the doctor's heart if it actually turned out that he was from that very same tribe and that the people he were curing were his own family. The knowledge of your salvation fills Jesus Christ with joy. Why? Because he does not only want your forgiveness. He wants you. You. Us. Remember the first consequence of the joy? Why is Jesus filled with joy? Eternal life, eternity. How does Jesus define eternal life? Well, don't go there. I've got it written out here. John chapter 17, verse 3. Listen to this. This is eternal life, 
Jesus says this, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Faith is not only believing in a future that's assured, although it is that. It is a powerful truth and perspective, but that's not all. Faith is an active, intimate act of relationship with the God who is your Father in heaven, who knows you and loves you, who who has never let you down, who has never lied to you, whose speaking is always his doing. It is not a detached formal transaction of ritualism or empty religious work to try and benefit yourself between two parties. It is an act of active, intimate, loving dependence. He is the father who can be trusted. He is the father who always keeps his promises. He is the father who will never let you go if you have trusted in him. Now, what does that mean? My dear friends, do not lose sight of Christ. That is the reality of the future which must transform how you view the present. This world is not our home. Fight against the lure, the siren song of the culture around us which pulls and causes us to focus all of our attention and energy into today. And can I say, I'm as guilty of that as any one of us here. Property and family. Oh my goodness, property and family. What do you want most for your children? What is it you want most for your life? Well, imagine you've got that um, time machine. And you go back to yourself and you find the younger version of yourself and you run up. No matter what, above all else, make sure you... Now, from Hebrews 11, what should we say? Make sure you live by faith. Faith. And at the promise of tomorrow, be so substantial in your today that you live for tomorrow, not today. And that's a transformed life. Amen? Let's pray. As we close. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in your Son Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for us, bringing us into relationship with you. And we pray, Lord, uh, that for all of us, we would be men and women of faith, men and women who by faith, by trust and confidence in you and your word, are not consumed with the things of this world, do not spend our times on trivial pursuits, on the trivia, the mundane, the things that will rust and, and, and spoil. But instead, we have our perspective in life shaped by the reality of the future, our eternal relationship with you through Christ, our great high priest. We pray all this through the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.